0: Well, for those of you who are visiting, we have been going through the Gospel of Mark, but I'm not asking you to turn to the Gospel of Mark this morning. When we come to Mark chapter 12, Jesus Christ has come into Jerusalem for the final time. He has come there to die, not to die as a martyr, but to die as the Savior of the world. The Bible refers to him as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That means that in eternity past, the Trinity, the triune God, worked out a plan of salvation, a plan God the Father would administrate, Jesus Christ the Son would accomplish on the cross, and God the Holy Spirit would apply in time to every believer. Because of that plan of salvation, no man would take the life of Jesus Christ from him. As he says in John 10, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Now, for much of what we read in the Gospels, Jesus Christ took measures to protect himself from his enemies because his hour had not yet come. But now as we're coming to Mark chapter 12, the hour to G- for Jesus to die is drawing near. And so Jesus has come into Jerusalem, and he has presented himself in the very temple, which is the headquarters of his enemies. And as he teaches there within the temple precincts, he is, so to speak, a sitting duck for his enemies. And various groups of his enemies come to approach him to try to get him to say something or do something that would get him in trouble with his adoring followers and give them a grounds for arresting him and destroying him. We've considered three groups that have come to Jesus to try to get him into trouble. The third group was a group called the Sadducees. They were a semi-religious, semi-political sect of the Jews. They controlled the priesthood. They controlled the temple. Their religion, unlike the Pharisees, was rationalistic. It was a skeptical religion. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in resurrection. The previous two groups came to Jesus, trying to put him on the horns of a dilemma by asking him certain questions, and he vanquished them. The Sadducees have a different approach. They are attacking not his person, but his doctrine in order to hold it up to ridicule. They want to ridicule the doctrine of resurrection. And so they ask him a question about the resurrection and they didn't even believe in the resurrection. We studied that last week. The result was the Sadducees were vanquished by our wise Lord, just like the other two groups. And they fail in their objective rather than, Getting the multitudes to turn against Jesus, they endeared them more to him. Mark doesn't tell us, but Matthew tells us that when Jesus is finished with dealing with the Sadducees, when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So it had the opposite effect. Rather than alienating people from Jesus, it drew them closer to Jesus. Well, in the course of silencing the Sadducees, Jesus makes one of those grand statements that deserve special attention. In condemning their whole religion, he makes this statement in Mark chapter 12, verse 24. Is this not the reason you are mistaken that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? Now, Matthew's version puts it not as a question, but as an assertion. You are mistaken. I like the King James. You err, knowing not the scriptures or the power of God. I want to build a whole sermon around that statement. Jesus is saying that error in religion comes from two sources. You want to be wrong when it comes to religion. Here are the two sources. Be ignorant of the scriptures or disbelieve in the power of God, that God is able to do what he says he will do in the scriptures. If we put it positively, we might put it this way. The truthfulness of any religion corresponds to the degree that one understands the scriptures and trusts the power of God you want to be wrong in religion just be ignorant of the scriptures friends should that mean that our highest should that not mean that our highest goal ought to be not to be wrong not to be mistaken about matters of ultimate importance. And that's what religion is. It comes from the Latin word, which means to bind. It's about binding ourselves to God, connecting ourselves to God. That's the most important thing in the world. It should be to us, right? Being rightly related to God. If you want to be wrong about religion, Jesus says, just be ignorant of the scriptures. Conversely, if you want to be right about ultimate matters, about religion, understand the scriptures rightly and believe in the power of God. You see, there are a lot of things in life that we could be ignorant of, and we're not going to suffer terribly for it. You know, there's so much to know in our day, there's been an explosion of knowledge that the distance between what we will end up knowing and what there is to know is getting wider and wider, right? All of us will live and die without understanding a whole lot of things. Do you understand about the human gene, uh, genome? Do you understand about DNA? Do you understand how the internet works? Do you understand how you press a few buttons and not only the voice, but the face of a loved one or, or family members appears from the other side of the world? Do you understand how that works? Some of you may. Most of us don't. Do you understand how all the systems of the body work? The circulatory system and the nervous system and, and all the systems of the body. Well, if you're a, a very seasoned medical scholar, you might. But most of us, we, we live and all these systems are operating and going on. and We don't have a clue as to how they're operating. There are a lot of skills that we will never acquire in this life. My wife and I have been watching, I guess we finished watching a Netflix series uh, called Blown Away. It's about the art of glass blowing. It's fascinating. Some of the beautiful things that are made out of glass in 2000 degree, you know, heat. We will never acquire that skill. A lot of other skills we will never acquire. I will never be able to build a house like Merv Byler can build a house. And in 20 minutes, right, Merv? Didn't you do that at Talent And I took 20 minutes to build house. <laughs> Time-lapse video. There are a lot of things I will never be able to do. I will live and die and I will know nothing about. But the one thing we dare not live and die being ignorant of is religion. The matters of ultimate concern. We're going to live and die without knowing a whole lot of things and it will not hurt us. But if you live and die ignorant of how to be rightly related to God, it will have grave consequences. We dare not be mistaken when it comes to these matters of ultimate reality, religion. And Jesus says, you're wrong if you don't understand the scriptures. So it's a little ambitious, but what I want to do is I want to unfold several ways to avoid erring or deceiving ourselves in not understanding the scriptures. And I have eight of them, but I think I can get through them. If you don't want to be wrong in religion... You don't want to misunderstand the scriptures. The first way to be wrong with regard to the scriptures, you can be mistaken by a total omission of the scriptures. And here I'm speaking of every religion in the world, ancient or modern, Eastern or Western, that completely leaves out the Bible, the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. It has been said rightly that man is incurably religious. And isn't it true? We have been made by God. We have been made for God. The Bible says eternity is in our hearts. We know there's a life after death. The Bible says we understand what the law of God demands, Romans chapter 2. And as a result, man is incurably religious. We are all worshipers of something or someone, but there are whole religions that build their system apart from the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. Buddhism, and Hinduism, and Shintoism, and Confucianism, all of the Eastern religions, the ancient pagan religions, worshipped many gods, Greek, and Roman, and others. We can include the ancient or modern philosophers who build their worldview, not on the Bible, but on on the, the ruminations of their own mind, trying to figure out God and ultimate reality, beginning with their own minds. What must be said about all these religions and all these philosophies that totally leave out the Bible? Friends, they are mistaken. They go astray. And by the way, when Jesus said, you err, I forgot to tell you that the Greek word is plana'o, from which we get planet. It means to wander, to stray. The planets were viewed as wandering bodies. Every religion in the world, ancient and modern, that leaves out the Bible completely is mistaken. They go far astray. The Bible says all who have sinned without the law, all who live without a knowledge of the Bible will perish without the law. Though all people have a knowledge of God through the creation, that general revelation will not give them enough knowledge to save them. And so every system of ultimate truth that leaves out the Bible will lead people astray. It's pretty evident that all those religions have a view of God that is very different from the God of the Bible. I remember Francis Schaeffer writing and saying that the gods of the East are infinite, but not personal. The gods of Eastern religion are infinite, absolute, but not very personal. The gods of the West, the pagan gods of Greek and Rome were very personal They had a lot of human foibles. You know, they made mistakes like humans. They were very fallible, but they were not infinite. But he says the God of the Bible is both infinite, transcendent, and personal, which accounts for why we are personal beings. So without the revelation of God in the Bible, every other religion is wrong, and people who follow them are lost, wandering around in the maze of their own fallen, sin-darkened mind, goaded by a deceiving devil. That's the first way to be wrong. But it's also possible to be mistaken by making additions to Scripture. Anyone who knows the Scriptures knows that the Bible claims to be unique and exclusive. It claims to be the only revelation from God, the only special revelation from God. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says, All Scripture is God-breathed profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible claims to be sufficient. We read in Proverbs 35 and 6, every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will reprove you and you will be proved a liar. Don't add to the word of God. It is sufficient. The nearly last verse of the the Bible, a couple verses before the end, Revelation 22, 18 says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. You see, the Bible alone claims to be a revelation from God. And if it is a pure word from God to add anything to it is to pollute it to pollute its purity. To add to the scriptures is to corrupt the scriptures. And friends, that's exactly what happens. It happened in history and it's happening today. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees added to scripture, didn't they? They believed the Bible, the scriptures, but they added to the scriptures. They added the oral traditions of their rabbis. And Jesus Indicted them for that in Mark 7, 6, he says, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the traditions of men. You see, when you add to the scriptures, you end up following those additions and neglecting the scriptures they choke out the scriptures. Someone has said if you try to supplement the scriptures with another authority, you end up supplanting or replacing the scriptures. And that was true of the Pharisees. It was true of the background of some of us here, Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism accepts the Bible as the word of God, but they have added to it They've added the traditions of the fathers, the decisions of church councils, the supposed infallible pronouncement of of the popes. And what do you end up with? You end up with all kinds of notions that are far removed from the Bible. You have a class of men called priests that wear holy garments as a subset of society, where the Bible teaches that every believer is is a priest. You have certain ones called saints. You know how you become a saint? Three miracles have to be performed in your name after you die. The Bible says every believer is a holy one. Every believer is a saint. We have things like the wafer communion turning into the literal body of Jesus. The Bible doesn't teach that. You have icons and statues and holy water and the worship of relics. Where is that taught in the Bible? You see, when you add to the Bible, you end up replacing the Bible, as Roman Catholic religion has done. You take the cults, which have developed from Christianity as another example. The cults will pay lip service to the Bible. Yes, the Bible's the word of God, but inevitably they add to it. And so the Jehovah's Witnesses have the studies in the scriptures by their founder, Charles Taz Russell. The Mormons will say, yes, the Bible's the word of God, but they also have the Book of Mormon, Doctrines and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price. Christian science has... Science and health with a key to the scriptures by its founder, Mary Baker Eddy. And what happens? They end up with teachings that are very wacky and far removed from the teaching of the Bible. When you try to supplement the Bible with other authorities, you supplant or replace the Bible. (coughs) Our friends, the Amish are guilty of this. I've worked among the Amish for 17 years and have probably hundreds of Amish friends most of them ex-Amish friends. But not all. What have they done? Well, the Amish would tell you they believe the Bible. The Amish would tell you they believe in salvation by grace. Plus, you gotta be in the ordinum, the oddning. You gotta follow the rules of the church. And so it's a copay system, God's grace plus your works. And because they've added to the scriptures, they have corrupted the scriptures. And so when you add to the scriptures, you end up denying some of the major beliefs of Orthodox Christianity, such as the deity of Christ, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, some denying, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, the doctrine of hell. Do you know what the Mormons believe? They have a doctrine of Adam God, that as man is now, God once was, and as God is now, man can become. We will become gods. Does that sound familiar? Where does that come from? Wanting to be God. That's from hell itself. That was Satan's desire to be like God. And so you're going to be wrong about the scriptures. You're going to be wrong about religion if you try to add anything to the scriptures and not be content with the authority and the sufficiency of scripture. But here's a third way to be mistaken. Remember Jesus' words, you err. You are mistaken not knowing the scriptures or the power of God. You want to be wrong in religion? Just be ignorant about the scriptures. Here's a third way, being mistaken by making subtractions from the scriptures. That was the error of the Sadducees in the context of Mark 12. They denied much of the canon of scripture, they believed that only the first five books of Moses were the word of God. They denied resurrection. They didn't believe in the power of God to raise the dead. They were, they were rationalists. They were skeptics. They took away from the teaching of the word of God. And religions do that. People do that who are rationalistic. They say whatever can't be explained by human reason is not to be believed. And so man's mind, rather than the scriptures, man's mind becomes the measure of truth. Whatever is super, supernatural, whatever is suprarational, things I cannot understand with my little human mind, they're to be rejected. And so in the case of the Sadducees, they rejected angels, spirits, and resurrection and the life to come. <clears throat> We have the Enlightenment in history, in the 17th, 18th century, where um, 1700s, where men began to trust in science. science became their God. And they shelved the Bible in favor of that. They took away from the supernatural in the Bible. Thomas Jefferson, a great man in many ways, a founder of our nation. But he he wrote a Bible that, that left out all the supernatural, all the miraculous. He subtracted from the Bible. And then you're taking away Christianity. In the 20th century, we have theological liberalism, modernism, that has denied some of the important tenets of the faith. They deny the inspiration of Scripture. They deny the virgin birth of Jesus, deny his deity, deny his substitutionary atonement, deny his bodily resurrection and second coming, and it ends up being no longer Christianity. In fact, in the 20s and 30s, one of the great defenders of the faith when theological liberalism was attacking the churches was J. Gresham Machin and he wrote a classic book I read years ago, Christianity and Liberalism. And his thesis was, this liberalism, this modernism, is not Christianity. You can call it Christianity, but it's denying so many central truths of Christian orthodoxy. It is not Christianity. And so, when you subtract from the Bible certain things, it it could take you outside the orbit of saving faith. But there are others who subtract from the scriptures, and it's not necessarily fatal, but it's dangerous. Let me show you some areas where people can subtract things from the Bible, not in and of itself fatal to their souls, but very dangerous. There are some who say, you know, the Bible is the word of God, and it's true when it comes to teaching about religion and spiritual things but it's not true when it comes to matters of history and science. Well, there's a problem with that. Yeah, I believe the Bible's message about salvation, but I don't really believe that Jonah was swallowed by a big fish. You say, well, wait a minute. Jesus believed it. In fact, he made a parallel between the three days Jonah was in the fish and the three days he will be in the earth prior to his resurrection. Jesus believed it. Now you have a problem with Jesus. I believe the Bible about salvation, but I don't really believe that Adam and Eve existed as real people. But you have a problem, because Jesus did. In fact, he he pointed to Adam and Eve as the foundation of marriage in Matthew 19. Paul said the origin of sin into the world was through Adam, as through one man, sin entered the world. Paul believed in a literal Adam. Jesus believed. So you see, you deny that certain historical and scientific things of the Bible are not true, and you're really opening up the door. You're on a slippery slope to more serious errors. There are others who, they don't like Paul's teaching about genders. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over men. Women are not permitted to be pastors in the church. A lot of people in our day, in the spirit of our age, and egalitarians, they don't like that. And they say, well, well, that was a cultural thing. That was kind of a hangover from Paul's rabbinic training. But, you know, we're living in a new century now. And, you know, that was for then, but now things are different. And so you begin to get into trouble. So even more moderate subtractions from the scriptures can lead to more serious errors that misrepresent God and his ways and dishonor him. Here's a fourth way that you can be wrong about the Scriptures, and we're getting a little deeper here, and I, my apologies if you're a young Christian, but, but this is another way that we need to avoid being mistaken regarding the Scriptures, what I'm calling being mistaken by missing the historical progression of the Scriptures. The Bible has a plan of salvation that unfolds. It's like the light of his Plan gets brighter and brighter through the ages. In the Old Testament, God worked with a nation, Israel. And according to the Bible, He was kind of dealing with His people in their infancy back then. You know, with your infant children, your young children, we have grandchildren who are very young, and their books are mostly picture books. There are some words because they need to learn words, but a lot of pictures. You adults, when you read a book, you don't say, oh, I like that book. I like the pictures, right? You want the words because you're mature. You don't need the pictures. Well, in the Old Testament, there were a lot of pictures. He's dealing with his people in their spiritual immaturity. So there are a lot of ceremonies uh, going on. There are a lot of outward forms and ceremonies. There are holy places and holy things and holy garments and holy vessels and holy days. But his dealings with his Old Testament people and their relative immaturity gives way to dealing with a more spiritual people in the new covenant age. You notice that under the new covenant, we don't have a lot of ceremonies, do we? Only two. Baptism, which gets you into the church and the Lord's Supper. That's it. We don't need a lot of pictures because it's an age of greater spiritual maturity. In the Old Testament God was dealing with a natural national people in the New Covenant he's dealing with a spiritual people and so the types and shadows of the Old Covenant give way to the substance of the new Israel of old a physical national people progress to the spiritual people of the church who were the descendants of Abraham under the old covenant? Who was the seed of Abraham under the old covenant? Those who were physically descended from Abraham—you had to be a Jew. I ask you: Who's a Jew now? Who is a true Jew now in the eyes of God? Galatians three twenty-eight and twenty-nine: There is neither Jew nor Greek; there is neither slave nor free man; there is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. A national, physical people give way to a spiritual people. And, and these are in-house battles, but I'm, I'm declaring to you where I am theologically, okay? Some Christians turn progression into retrogression. Because of a, a, a wooden literalism in their approach to prophecy, they don't see the church as the pinnacle of God's dealings with his people, but they believe that somehow God has to go back to dealing with Israel. And you know what that means? It means that there's going to be a rebuilt physical temple, renewed sacrifices, and a revived priesthood. Now, when you think about that, it should give you pause. Wait a minute. We go from a physical temple to Christ being the temple and the church being the temple, and we go back to a physical temple, back to physical sacrifices, it'll all give you pause and say, wait a minute, is that theology right? Is that, do they have progression right? I think we're going backwards there. So I don't agree with that. I think there's too much discontinuity. But then there are other brothers and sisters where there's too much Continuity. They say because Abraham baptized his children, his seed, or circumcised them, therefore the children or seed of believers need to be baptized. And so they baptize babies. And there are brothers and sisters. It's an in-house debate. But I say, no, that was a physical people, a national people. Now we have a spiritual people. So who gets baptized? Not those who are the seed of parents, but those who are spiritual seed of Abraham. They're circumcised in their hearts. And so anyway, you want to know why I'm a reformed Baptist? That's why. Because I'm reformed and not non-reformed because I believe in those distinctives, but I'm a reformed Baptist and not a Pado baptist because I believe that that understands continuity and discontinuity correctly. So we can err, and again, I could be wrong but this is where I stand. I think we can be wrong in getting the progression of of revelation wrong. Here's a fifth way we could err with regard to the Scriptures. We could be mistaken by misunderstanding the proper relations of Scripture doctrines. In the previous error, it's an error of biblical theology. In other words, the progression of the unfolding of God's plan of salvation through history, how it progresses. This would be more an error of Systematic theology, I know, big words, new things to some of you, but systematic theology is first of all understanding the various doctrines of the Bible, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of salvation, and then understanding how they all fit together in a harmonious way, because God is not a God of contradiction. And so it's all like one giant jigsaw puzzle, and we have to fit all the doctrines of the Bible together in a way they don't contradict. So let's take an obvious one. You're studying the doctrine of God's sovereignty in salvation and man's responsibility. You could be mistaken if you don't understand the proper relationship. So suppose you look at all of those verses of the Bible that talks about man needing to believe. He's commanded to repent. He's commanded to believe. Whosoever will may come to me. And you focus all of your attention on our responsibility to repent and believe, which is a biblical teaching. But you neglect the verses about God's sovereignty. Like Ephesians 1, 6, chosen, Clint preached on it a couple of weeks ago, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. Those whom he predestined, these who he also called, these whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he glorified. But you only focus on man's responsibility. You come to the conclusion that man is the final determiner of his salvation. And you neglect the sovereignty of God. But suppose you focus only on those verses that talk about God's work in salvation. Chosen in him, predestined by him. God gave a people from the father gave a people to the son. And you neglect the teaching about human responsibility. Then you're imbalanced in that direction. You become a hyper-Calvinist. The one will lead you to the error of Arminianism, man-centered, salvation depends on me. The other will lead you to hyper-Calvinism, excluding man's responsibility and the free offer of the gospel. You see how we need to understand the doctrines of scripture as they rightly relate to each other. So you ask, well, how do you fit those together, Pastor Chuck? And the answer is, I can't. No one can. Somehow God is absolutely sovereign and we must embrace it with both arms. Man is completely responsible. We must embrace that with both arms and let God figure it out. And maybe an attorney will understand, but believe both because both are true. Make sense? Here's a sixth way of eight to be wrong regarding the scriptures, being mistaken by misproportion or imbalance of scripture teaching. You can be wrong in understanding the scriptures, if you major on the, ma- on the minors, and you minor on the majors. Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew twenty three twenty three, he said something very significant. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you've neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should... Have done without neglecting the others. You see what they were doing? The Pharisees were very scrupulous. Oh, we need to give a tenth of this and a tenth of this and a tenth of that. Very careful about tithing their spices. But when it came to the big deal issues like justice and mercy and faithfulness, they neglected those. And Jesus humorously says it's like straining out a little gnat from your wine and swallowing a camel. You got it backwards. You're majoring on the minors, minoring on the majors, you see? And it's possible to do that with Scripture and be wrong. So I won't turn you to it for the sake of time, but in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is dealing with two sisters, the sisters of Lazarus, the family he loved. And Jesus and his friends were over for dinner, and Martha was scurrying about making preparations And Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet. And what does Jesus do? He gently corrects Martha. Martha, Martha, you're worried about so many things. A few things are needful, really only one. And Mary's chosen the better part. What was she doing? She was sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him. That teaches us something. Serving the Lord is important. It's not more important than being devoted to the Lord. Learning from the Lord sitting at the Lord's feet. And so it teaches us that knowing the Lord precedes serving the Lord. Don't get that backwards. In Galatians 6.10, we read, do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. You know, there are some Christians who tell us that we need to feed the whole world. We need to feed the poor. But are you aware that when the scriptures talk about taking care of the poor, there's a clear priority on the people of God? Do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. In Matthew 25, when Jesus says, I was hungry and you fed me, you know what he says? When you have done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. James 2 says, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled. You see, there's a priority on our brethren. You're not to feed the poor in the world first. You're to take care of in-house brothers and sisters. When it comes to the Christian's responsibility to society, we are to be salt and light. We are to influence this world as much as we can for Christ and God. But you don't want to put trying to change the world by political or economic means above evangelism. The heartbeat of the New Testament The purpose of Jesus' coming was, I've come to seek and save what what was lost. Whatever changes God wants to make in society, he will make, but it will be as a result of regenerated people influencing their respective cultures. And the primacy is on evangelism and winning the lost. Scripture cares about our bodies. John says, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. God cares about our bodies and our bodily health, but 1 Timothy 4.7 says bodily training is of some value, but godliness is of value in every way. It has profit not only for this life, but for the life to come. So you see, you can err by, by majoring on minors and minoring on majors. Yes, our, our bodily health is important, but something more important is the health of your soul. And in this area, there's balance. You know you can err by being imbalanced having truth out of balance. And you know, it's one of the themes of my life to be balanced in everything. Pastoral authority needs to be balanced with pastoral servanthood. I have authority as a pastor, but I'm to use that authority as a servant to you. You're not to serve me. I am to serve you. I'm the follower of the one who who took a towel and wash basin and washed his disciples' feet. That's the kind of authority I exercise. But you need to balance. If if you don't, if, if you only focus on pastoral authority, it will lead to oppression and authoritarianism. If I only focus on servanthood, we'll lose the idea of pastoral authority. Balancing justification with sanctification. Some Christians focus on justification only. You're saved, you're forgiven, you're righteous by the grace of God, the grace of God, the grace of God, and they never talk about your duty to be holy. It leads to hyper-grace and antinomianism. I can be comfortable. God loves me. It doesn't matter how I live. But if I hammer at sanctification without justification, and week after week I lay duty upon duty upon duty upon you, And I never remind you you're loved by God you're forgiven you're justified you're fully freely forgiven you're adopted as a child of God what will it do it will oppress and burden the people of God so justification and sanctification need to be balanced and we can go on to dozens of areas where the Christian life needs to be balanced truth and grace Jesus was full of truth, but he was also full of grace. And some people can hold the truth in a harsh, severe way that's cold. And other people in the name of being gracious can compromise the truth. So we want to be people of truth and people of grace. So we can err in not getting the right balance in biblical truths. And then we can be mistaken by making wrong interpretations of Scripture. The Sadducees did that. Okay, a man dies. Without a child, his brother's supposed to marry her her, and seven husbands marry her. Ah, who's going to be the husband in the resurrection? They made a deduction. Teaching was wrong. There is no marriage in the life to come. And we can be wrong if we don't understand the rules of interpreting Scripture. We quoted Galatians 3.28 before. Neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Egalitarians use that and say, ah, see, neither male nor female. We can have lady pastors. See, it says neither male nor female. The problem is they don't understand it in context. It's not talking about roles, it's talking about our redemptive equality. Women, as well as men, are all equally blessed in Jesus. It's not talking about their roles. Context. Get the context wrong, you're er. Grammar. 1 John 3 9 says, Every, the one born of God does not sin. Whoa, wait a minute. If I'm a true Christian, that means I don't sin anymore? No. You have to understand that the Greek present tense means ongoingly, I don't habitually, ongoingly sin. I don't practice sin anymore. Understand scriptures, interpret scripture with scripture. So many principles. If you don't understand the principles of biblical interpretation, we can err. And then finally, we can be mistaken by missing the purpose of scripture. You know, some people accuse Christians of being bibliolaters, worshipers of the Bible. I ask you rhetorically, nobody answer. Um, You think that's possible, to worship the Bible? You see, on the one hand, Psalm 138.2 says, For you have magnified your word according to or together with all your name." The name of God stands for who God is. It's his attributes. It's his character. God has put his word on a level of his being. There's a sense in which we can never have too much regard for the Bible. However, it is possible to miss the purpose for which Scripture was given. There are some Christian teachers, I can name one in particular, whose teaching is that the Bible is a book of life principles. And if you just follow these principles and obey these rules, you will have the key to successful living. And it reduces Christianity to formulas. Do this and you will get these desired guaranteed results. Now, the Bible does contain principles, moral laws, ethical teaching, And obedience to God versus disobedience to God will definitely yield different results. There is a a law of sowing and reaping. But we must never reduce the Bible to a checklist of rules to follow to ensure success in life. You know what that leads to? It leads to either a crippling fear that, oh, I broke a rule and God's going to hammer me and punish me. Or, you know what? I'm doing a good job following the rules. I'm checking the boxes. What's wrong with you? And we look down our self-righteous nose at others who aren't following the rules quite as well as we are. And it leads to a self-righteous Phariseeism. That's what that kind of Christianity does. That sees the Bible as a book of life principles that we follow. The Bible has principles. But it's possible to follow those principles and miss the purpose of the Bible. What is the purpose of the Bible? What if theologians said it's the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever? What is the message of the Bible? It's a message about how we can glorify God and how we can know God and enjoy him forever. And we glorify God by knowing him and by enjoying him. And so Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Paul says in Philippians 3.10, Paul's desire in life that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. For now we see in a mirror dimly, Paul says, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I will know fully as I also have been fully known. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The purpose of the Bible is not to give us principles to follow as a checklist to have a successful life. The purpose of the Bible is to glorify God by us knowing him and enjoying him, worshiping him, communing, fellowshipping with him, serving him, obeying him, communing with him in prayer. That's the goal of the Bible. And so... As I close, we should love the Bible. We should study the Bible. We should memorize the Bible, meditate on the Bible, put ourselves under the best teaching and preaching of the Bible we can find both in our local church and electronically. And we should work hard to avoid the mistakes that will lead us into error in understanding the Bible. But always keep in mind that God's grand purpose in giving us the Bible is that we might know him and glorify him in a living, loving, personal relationship with him. And so as I close, I ask, is there anyone here who does not know God? You say, well, I know about God. You may know a lot about God, but the Bible speaks of knowing God, a personal relationship with God. If that language is strange to you, knowing God, then maybe you don't know him. You know about him, you know facts about him, you may be even able to quote the Bible, but do you know God? The only way to know God is to acknowledge that, by nature, you do not know God, that you're separated from him because of your sin. You've gone your own way, and you need to be restored to a relationship with him. And according to the Bible, there's only one way that that can happen. Jesus Christ, God's son, came. He lived the perfect life that we could not live fulfilled the law we could not fulfill, and then he died in the place of sinners, suffering the punishment for the sins that we deserved. When we believe in him, what he did counts for us. All our sins are paid for in him. We are given his righteousness, credited to us, and all of our sin is taken by him. We are forgiven, we are destined for heaven but we also come into a personal living relationship with him by which we know him and we want to know him better through prayer and through the reading of his word, the obeying of his word until we are with him face to face. If you don't know God, ask many of us here and we can tell you more about how to know God in a saving way through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, Help us not to err and be mistaken when it comes to your word, but to handle it rightly, to understand it rightly in terms of what it teaches about the way of salvation and the way to walk with you. We pray in Jesus' name.